0: This morning, as we continue our study in the Gospel of Mark, we're going to focus now on the servant on true religion. And it says in chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, And he, that's Jesus, entered the synagogue again. And a man was there who had a withered hand. So they watched him closely, whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man, who had the withered hand? Step forward. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil? To save life or to kill? But they kept silent. And when he had looked around at them with anger, being grieved by the hardness of their hearts, he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored as whole as the other. Then the Pharisees went out immediately plotted with the Herodians against him, how they might destroy him. Mark's gospel has focused on a series of conflicts between the religious leaders and the Lord Jesus Christ. The first conflict is recorded in chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. The second in chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. The third in chapter 2, verse 18 through 22. And then the fourth in verses 23 through 28 at the end of the chapter. And the conflicts continue to rise and they're going to come to a head here in chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. In verse 16 of chapter 2, he said, He eats and drinks with publicans and sinners. In verse 18, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples fast not? In in chapter 18, it says, why, or in verse 24, Why do they do on the Sabbath that which is not lawful to do? And then here in chapter 3, verse 2, They watched him, that they might have reason to accuse him. In verses 23 through 28, Jesus calls on the religious leaders to choose between legalism and love. And now Jesus will ask the religious leaders to choose between malice and mercy. And the criticism rises and climbs the chapter begins with controversy is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath and the controversy opens a window into two hearts the heart of Jesus as we see his courage but then it also opens a window into the heart of the religious leaders it begins with a miracle it ends with a revelation Of malice in the hearts of the religious leaders. Jesus will heal a man on the Sabbath. And that doesn't surprise us. It doesn't surprise us that Jesus does what's right. Jesus does what's good. Jesus does what's decent and noble. But it is a little bit surprising. To find these religious leaders so filled with antagonism, opposition persecution, hatred. As a matter of fact, the healing will provoke murder in their hearts. You know, the Bible says that we're to avoid vain disputes and unnecessary arguments. But the religious leaders will wind up in the end accusing Jesus, not only of violating the Sabbath, but of teaching a false religion. In this confrontation, the servant will take on the religious leaders by healing the man who's withered or has a paralyzed hand. We have a little bit of a clue that's given to us almost a decade after The death and the resurrection of Jesus, James, the brother of Jesus, will write in James chapter one, verse twenty seven, pure and undefiled religion before God and the father is this to visit the orphans and to visit the widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. James uses an interesting expression, undefiled religion before God and the father. Here, religion means piety. It means religious beliefs and religious behavior. But when he uses the expression undefiled religion before God and the Father, he's pointing out that it's the kind of religion that the Father sees as pure and sincere in the eyes of the person who matters most. God's eyes. You know, it's one thing for you to say, this is what I think religion is. It's another thing for me to say, this is what I think religion is. But it's something else entirely for God to say, this is what I think religion is. As a matter of fact, some Bible teachers suggest that James is using a metaphor of precious pearls that are radiant and unstained. And so he's talking about a religion where a person's heart and a person's mind It's where their belief and their behavior match. And now Jesus is going to take on the religious establishment. He's going to contrast it, not with just pure religion and true religion, but with false religion. And that comes to the point. What is true religion? And our passage gives us an insight into what constitutes true religion. For Jesus, it means taking a stand in verse 3. It means doing the right thing. It means healing. It means doing good. It means saving lives in verse 4. True religion means expressing compassion in the face of criticism, but it also means godly anger against that which which is evil, and that which is wicked, and that which is in error. Whatever else is involved in true religion, it must exclude, intrigue. And by the way, in the end, man-made religion, ungodly religion, will make every effort to get rid of Jesus. And that's exactly what we see in verse 6. True religion before God and the Father is choosing love over legalism. True religion, according to the Bible, is choosing mercy instead of malice. True religion has to be choosing relationship over religion. And the Bible teaches that true religion includes faith confidence in the person of Jesus. True religion means to fully trust Jesus and then be willing to live a life that's pleasing to him. We repent. We confess of our our sins. We trust Jesus. We allow the Holy Spirit to come into our lives to control us and direct us. And the net result is love and freedom and power and eternal life by Jesus. Contrast that with man-made religion. Man-made religion has its focus in the self, self self-effort, self-help, self-deeds, doing what's good, doing what's helpful. But the goal, of course, is through self-effort. The idea being that somehow these good deeds will please God enough to be pleased with you. Man-made religion lays hold on on the false promise that you can work your way to heaven. Man-made religion makes man the means. Diligent service, works, and the hope of reward and the power to accomplish this doesn't come by the power of the Holy Spirit and it certainly doesn't come by having a right relationship with God and Christ. In their way of thinking, it's honest effort and self-determination. And for the man or the woman who loves religion, they get to stay in control. They become self-motivated. But you know what the end result for them is? It is apathy and failure and chronic guilt and then despair and ultimately eternal separation from God. And so in chapter 3, verse 1, we see the servant. He enters the synagogue in Capernaum for another time. It says he enters the synagogue again and a man was there who had a withered hand. Mark uses a very descriptive term to describe the man's condition. He had a withered hand. The word withered is perfect, passive, zereno. It means dried out. It means shriveled. It means shrunken. The full force of the word is all dried up. And the idea is that Peter remembers the extreme disability of the man's limb. And we're not told how he lost the use of his hand, whether it was by birth or some tragic accident. We don't know if it was congenital work or labor in that culture and society typically meant that you had to have two good hands. Dr. Luke, with the keen precision of a doctor, brings medical issues into play in Luke chapter six, verse six. He reminds us that it was the man's right hand. But for those of you who are unfamiliar with the scriptures, certain disabilities meant that you couldn't come into the temple and that you couldn't offer sacrifices In Leviticus chapter 21 verses 18 through 20, it says for any man who has a defect shall not approach a man who is blind, a man who is lame, who has a marred face or any limb too long, a man who has a broken foot, a man who has a broken hand, a man who is a hunchback, a man who is a dwarf, a man who has a defect in his eye or eczema or a scab or a eunuch. So the man was drawn outside the circle of the temple worship, but he could come into the synagogue. If he were a priest or the descendant of Aaron, he would never have been able to offer sacrifices. But he is able to come in to the synagogue. He is able to participate with the people of God and the worship of God. And according to Luke, Jesus has been teaching all this while. When I was a very young man, I would walk to school. I grew up in a desert community called Hesperia. And my kindergarten and first grade and second grade was spent there. And I remember every day walking to school. And there was a little girl. Her name was Kathy Turner. And she would walk on the opposite side of the desert. And her left hand was completely shrunken and atrophied. Her left arm was useless and she would hold her left hand in her right hand and she would drag her left foot as she would try to make her way to school. And my ignorance was only exceeded by my insensitivity and my cruelty and my wickedness. I had no idea what was wrong with her. She just seemed like a simple target to make fun of. It wasn't until years later that I heard the story and I understood what had happened. Her father had left a loaded weapon in the house and the young girl had picked up the weapon and discharged it. And the bullet lodged in her brain and it caused the left side of her body to go completely paralyzed. And after months and months and months and months of therapy, she was able to drag her leg and she was able to pick up her hand and she was able to walk to school. But I can guarantee you that almost no one knew her circumstance And you read the text and you hear about this man and you hear about his circumstances and you might be inclined to dismiss him as some unwilling pawn in some sort of religious struggle. But make no mistake about it, he's a person with a real life. And it says in verse 2, so they watched him closely. This this is the religious leaders. Whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. The word watched means to watch closely. It means to inspect. It means to observe carefully. We we have an expression in English. Watching you. I got my eyes on you. As a matter of fact, when Wycliffe, the very first person ever to translate the Bible into the English language, the first English Bible translated this word with an old English term. They espied him. You may not know what that means, but that translates into modern language. And they spied on him. There's a certain clandestine element. there. In the ancient world, law enforcement officers would use this same word to use to describe someone who was under investigation for crimes. We're looking closely into this person. In our own culture and society, when you hear a news tip and the police say, he is a person of interest, that's what they mean. We're watching him. Luke's gospel adds that it was the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who were watching him in Luke chapter 6 verse 7. People watch Jesus for any number of reasons. Skeptics, critics, doubters... There are people who love him, and there, there are people who hate him, and there are people who are curious about him, and there are people who are disinterested in him. There are people who are just living their lives, trying to figure out how to, how to get from one day to the next. It reminds me of a story that I read this week. One Sunday afternoon, there was a drunken man who was staggering down a country road, and he came upon a baptismal service at a pond, and there were Many people who were going to be baptized that day, and the drunk, not knowing what was going on, decided to get into the line. And as he got into the line, it came his turn to be baptized, and the preacher said to him, Sir, have you found Jesus? And the drunk said, No. And the preacher stuck him under the water, and the guy got baptized. Up and he says, "Have you found Jesus?" And the guy says, "No." And he stuck him under the water again, and he starts kicking and flailing, and he comes back up and he says, "Have you found Jesus?" And the man says, "Are you sure this is where he went down?" You stumble in and you walk in, and you have no idea what what this person's talking about. I'm wondering if the man with the withered hand understood the full implications of of what was going on. <sighs> All we know is that the religious leaders are trying to bring sufficient charges to try Jesus before the, the Jewish council. And there seems to be some evidence that if Jesus decides to heal the man on the Sabbath, the religious leaders believe that they can have enough Evidence and sufficient charges to bring accusation against him. And you would think that for Jesus, he would say to the man with the withered hand. Why don't we just wait till Sunday? Why all the drama? Why all the challenge? Why don't I just secretly take you somewhere where I can heal you and it doesn't have to be so problematic? But the servant will take a stand. Look at verse 3. And he, that is Jesus, said to the man who had the withered hand, step forward. As a matter of fact, the Greek language has Jesus saying, get up, stand up. And the command is imperative in a sense. Jesus is asking the man to stand up in front of everyone, to stand up in front of your friends and to stand up in front of your enemies and to stand up in front of everyone. But make no mistake about it. It isn't simply the man with the withered hand who's taking a stand. It is Jesus who is taking a stand. And life is about making choices and decisions, and some decisions can be delayed and some decisions can be postponed, some can be put off, but some decisions require an immediate response. And Jesus is going to draw a line in the sand. You may not know it at this point, but he knows exactly what helping this hurting man will mean he will generate antagonism and hatred where the religious leaders will begin to plot his murder and his death. As a matter of fact, when Jesus asks the man, to step forward in the presence of Jesus, in the presence of all of the people there, Jesus takes His stand with the man in need. And that's exactly what Jesus has done in history for you. He's taken a stand. He stood up for you. And said, guess what? Your emptiness can be filled. Your wickedness can be forgiven. Your heart, your life, the darkness, the emptiness. I'm willing to make it whole and I'm willing to make it well. Jesus will take a stand with the man in the need and, and we take our stand with the Savior. And you need to understand something. The man was obedient even though his healing had not yet taken place. And so in every generation, Jesus speaks to the needy and Jesus speaks to the spiritually dead. And he says, get up. Step forward where other people would like you to remain in darkness and emptiness and wickedness and loneliness. Jesus will say, stand up and step forward. And the line of demarcation is being drawn. Look at verse four, the servant on true religion. Then he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good? or to do evil to save life or to kill. But they kept silent. I want you to understand something about the fourth verse in a single sentence. Jesus preaches an entire message on mercy. The single sentence incorporates two questions. The first, will mercy take precedence over the Sabbath law? In effect, Jesus is making an appeal. Here's a man. He's in need. If I fail to heal him, Even though it will offend you, it will offend your religious sensibilities, it will offend your man-made laws, even though it's the Sabbath, would I not be doing that which is evil? And Jesus draws a principle that we can draw on in every generation. And that is ignorance, apathy, indifference, cruelty, insensitivity. You are either doing something or you are doing nothing. Here's what Jesus is suggesting. By failing to help him, we're actually harming him. And mercy shatters the logic of rabbinical law. What's the other question? Is it lawful on the Sabbath to save life or to kill? David McKenna points out, quote, If the Pharisees have no mercy for saving life... They indict themselves as killers on the Sabbath day, one by one, eyeball to eyeball. Mark tells us that Jesus makes the rounds. He looks into the soul of each man among the Pharisees, and as he looks, he reacts. His own eyes ignite with anger at the same time his heart breaks. Jesus is in effect saying, we will help him or we will harm him. What do the scriptures say? In Proverbs, chapter 85, verse 10, it says, mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. But the question reveals something far more dark and something far more sinister. It reveals the hypocrisy and the insincerity and the wickedness of the religious leaders who are there. I want you to think about this for just a moment. The religious leaders believe that Jesus helping a man in need is sinful and wrong. I want you to think that through for just a moment. Performing a miracle on the Sabbath is wrong. And then in their twisted logic they're unable not only to have mercy towards the man in need or to exercise even the most simple and basic compassion, they'll go one step further. They'll plot the death of Jesus on the Sabbath day. I want you to think that through for just a moment. How is it possible... To hate someone so much that you now take your energies, your religious energies, to get rid of them. In what twisted mind can conspiracy to commit murder not be seen as something truly evil? And think it through for just a moment. Jesus wants to help, not harm. Jesus wants to take something that is useless, And make it useful. And the question that Jesus asked is met with an embarrassed silence. Jesus wants to help the man. The religious leaders don't care about the man. We're given a glimpse at the hostility of unbelief. The religious leaders aren't struggling with doubt. They're not reserving judgment. They're not waiting for more facts. You're making a mistake if you're thinking that these religious leaders just need a little bit more information. They've seen Jesus heal a blind man. They've seen Jesus cure a leper they've seen jesus do remarkable things inexplicable things miraculous things and i want you to understand something the religious leaders never ever at any single moment in the history of jesus's ministry doubted the fact that he did miracles they never for a moment said he's a fraud and this is a fraud what they basically said was he does miracles by the power of satan The message of Jesus has been rejected. The claims of Jesus have been dismissed. They are critical. They watch him, note what it says, so that they might accuse him. Call it whatever you want. Criticism, skepticism, agnosticism, unbelief is antagonism towards Jesus. And that criticism will become callousness. They are unsympathetic. The welfare of this person is irrelevant. The religious leaders are morally impenetrable because unbelief has as its companion hardness, callousness. Unbelief goes beyond criticism and beyond callousness. There's another thing that it incorporates and that's craziness. It's kind of irrational. It's a form of madness. Unbelief doesn't stop at the irrational. It goes to a kind of moral blindness, a, a, a state of bitter hatred towards goodness. And you see, this is what's really incredible. Jesus is the essence of goodness. Jesus is the exact representation of everything that is sweet and everything that is pure and everything that is innocent. And they hate him. They hate him. How do we know? Because the religious leaders are unable to suppress the good words of Jesus and they're unable to suppress the good deeds of Jesus. So they'll suppress him. Horatius Bonner in the 19th century wrote, in all unbelief, there are two things. A good opinion of yourself And a bad opinion of God. And that really is the essence of unbelief. What I think and what I believe is more important than the revelation that God has given in creation and in your conscience and in the Bible. What kind of a God is God? The magnificent Creator. The upholder of all things. Paul understands this completely in the book of Colossians when he writes, Christ is all. You know what Paul believed? Paul believed that the sun shone because God made it to shine. That the moon was affixed to the earth, controlling the tides, that the the planet itself and everything on this planet, everything about it, everything about reality points to the fact that God is good and that God is kind and that He can be known and that you can know Him and that you exist to be known by Him. That friendship and fellowship begins and ends with Jesus. And it says in in verse 5, And when he had looked around at them with anger, underline that, being grieved, underline that, by the hardness of their hearts, underline that. He said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out. And his hand was restored as whole as the other. In a single sentence, Mark fills the verse with a flood of emotion. The simple verb, grieved, in the original language is lipeo. In the passive, it means sadness, sorrow, distress. But here, Mark uses a prepositional prefix, S-Y-N, assimilated S-Y-L, solipio. It has the net effect of intensifying the simple verb. It means deeply grieved it means deeply distressed and that's the way the NIV translates it and for good reason Mark records when he had looked around there's a momentary flash of anger at the stubborn unreasonable attitude of the religious leaders Who do not want to see a needy man healed on the Sabbath. But it's more than that. It's who see their position threatened. Their power threatened. Their authority threatened. Being grieved is in the present participle. It means an ongoing distress. It means... An ongoing distress over their attitude, over their selfishness, over their hypocrisy It's an ongoing distress because the hardness of their heart and their rebellion and their estrangement wouldn't be reasoned with What is it about religion and what is it about religious people who substitute cruelty for care? And Jesus is justifiably angry and deeply distressed when people are cruel to other people in the name of religion. He's angry and grieved. N.T. Wright says, How can you live with the terrifying thought that the hurricane has become human, that fire has become flesh, that life itself became life and walked in our midst. Christianity means either that or it means nothing. It is either the most devastating disclosure of the deepest reality of the world or it is a sham. It is a nonsense. It, it is a bit of deceitful play acting. Most of us, Unable to cope with saying either of those things. Condemn ourselves to live in the shallow world in between, unquote. You might think that this man and his injury was simply a religious pawn in an unholy war. And if you think that Jesus heals the man simply to make a point, you're missing the point. Jesus cares about this man. And as hard as that might be for some of you to believe, He cares about you. He cares about that empty, dry, useless portion of your life. He cares about the growing darkness. He cares about the bitterness and the estrangement. He chooses to heal a man in a public place with a public purpose, even knowing that it is going to inculcate profound problems for himself. The man's need and his care aren't part of the religious leader's agenda. And what does God want for this man? The same thing that he wants for you. Healing, wholeness, wellness. What do the religious leaders want to maintain power? Jesus challenges their manufactured authority and their religious pretension. He threatens their self-centeredness. And what does he have to offer the injured man? Healing, wholeness, love, permission to be free, deliverance from oppression, dignified treatment, pardon from sin. And what do the religious leaders have to offer this man? Wait till tomorrow. Wait till tomorrow. Maybe we can find some way to help you tomorrow. Maybe we can care about you tomorrow. Maybe we can somehow figure out what we can do with you tomorrow. But Jesus invites the man to stretch out his shrunken and withered hand. And by the way, the moment that he invites him to stretch out his withered hand, it reminds us of something that he invites us to do exactly the same thing, to take that thing that is empty, to take that thing that is useless, to take that thing and to offer it to him. And you might even be thinking about that right now. You might in your own heart and in your own mind, close your eyes and look at that empty, withered, useless portion of your life and And ask yourself, Jesus, will you take this and will you fill it and will you imbue it with life? And the man obeys Jesus. And the moment that he does, there is blood and there is life and there is energy sent to a useless, lifeless limb. And you know what I'm here to tell you? That there's life and energy and usefulness the moment you stretch out your heart and your soul and you give it to Jesus and you allow him to do what only Jesus can do so what do you do on Sundays? rest? worship? and clearly we should rest and we should worship But Jesus is doing something else. He's making it a day to make people whole, to save life. We were never meant to spend Sunday simply in self-indulgence or self-denial, but in renewal and service. We want to honor God. We want to love our neighbor. And Jesus seems to point us to acts of kindness and concern, the wholeness of life, and then ultimately to submit to the Lordship of who He is. But look at this final verse in our passage. Then the Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians against him. How they might destroy him. The lordship of Jesus is the last thing on their minds. You would think that because they're religious people. You would think that they would rejoice that a man who suffered so much, such an extreme disability, would shout for joy that they would see the circumstances that his life and his hand has been made whole. But no, they don't go, Woo! praise the Lord. There's a sense of hardness and bitterness. An unholy alliance is formed. By the way, the Pharisees opposed the Herodians on almost every single issue. The religious leaders and the political leaders refused to be convinced by anything Jesus said or did. The Herodians, by the way, they took their name from Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas was the grandson of Herod. The Herodians became a political group and a secular group who identified with Rome and the occupation of Rome. The Herodians were a political and secular group who welcomed the Romans and who welcomed Roman law and who welcomed the Roman way of life, who who saw the presence of the Romans as an opportunity for physical and financial prosperity. And so when the Romans came. They brought what the Romans loved. They brought Roman culture and they brought Roman language and they brought Roman deities. They brought paganism. They brought Greek culture. They brought Greek art. And with the Roman occupation, the religious Jews felt assaulted and bombarded by pagan practices and pagan values and overwhelmed by pluralism and paganism. The religious leaders hated the Herodians. And the Herodians hated the religious leaders. But both of them unite. The word plotted means counseled together. And it presupposes that their minds were already made up. Can you imagine the meeting? I hate you. And you hate me. But there's something that both of us hate more than we hate each other. Jesus is a threat. Jesus is a threat to the secular establishment and Jesus is a threat to the religious establishment. There's no separation of religion and state here. But when the religious leaders unite with the political leaders, they unite not to promote faith and not to promote freedom, but to finish him, to punish him, to destroy him. And the spiritually bankrupt religious leaders not only reject the spirit of their own scriptures, but they reject their own Messiah. And then they join with their own enemies In a plot to kill the savior. And by the way, this will become one of the themes of the book of Mark for the rest of the book. I think you understand something that the gospel of Jesus is offensive, both to religion and irreligion. The gospel of Jesus Christ is foreign. To religion and to moralism and to relativism, the gospel doesn't sit well with either secular politics or suspicious legal re- legalistic religion. And you have to understand something. The religious leaders, they were all for traditional values. They were all for moral conformity. The Herodians were all for self-discovery, political and social and cultural accommodation because of the Roman occupation. But Jesus, he's a problem. He's a real problem. Because Jesus is making it all about him. You know, one of the great privileges that I have is to be a chaplain for law enforcement officers. And from time to time, my fellow chaplains will come to me and they'll say, too much Jesus. You have too much Jesus. And I'll say, you have too little Jesus, not enough Jesus. It's really interesting when Jesus makes it all about him. That it's his life that brings life. It's his death that brings forgiveness and hope. That it's his resurrection that empowers and gives life. And both are united, the secular and the religious, in their commitment to get rid of them. Was Jesus a threat? Yes. To the political establishment? Yes. To the religious establishment? Yes. Again, Timothy Keller writes, quote, the gospel doesn't say the good are in and the bad are out. The open minded are in the judgmental are out. The gospel says the humble are in and the proud are out. The gospel says the people who know they're not better, not more open minded, not more moral than anyone else. They're in. And the people who think they're on the right side of the divide are in the most danger why Unquote. I'm fine my religion makes me fine my culture makes me fine the truth is perhaps we're afraid to ask one of the most important questions that we could ask why do they hate Jesus so much? The religious leaders hate his attitude, and they hate his character, and they hate his message, and they hate his miracles. No wonder Jesus said in the world you'll have tribulation and persecution. Remember, it was Jesus who said, I need you to understand something. They hated me way before they hated you. And why will they hate you? They'll hate you the moment that you embrace his message. They'll hate you the moment that you begin to cultivate his character. The moment that you embrace his message and you cultivate his character and you begin to take on his mindset, legalism doesn't work. Love does. Malice doesn't work. Mercy does. The moment that you do that, they'll hate you. And the ministry of Jesus has brought opportunity and it has brought opposition. And Jesus has healed the sick and he's helped the demon possessed. He's cleansed the leper. He's demonstrated forgiveness and compassion and hope and joy and mercy. And they hate him. They hate him for it. I think most people in our culture and society don't have the nerve To say that they hate Him when in fact they do. I think what they just try to do is forget Him. Forget the Bible. Forget the stories in the Bible. Forget Jesus. We become a product of our culture. It's like in the late 60's when Bob Dylan used to sing, And if anybody asks me, Is it easy to forget? I'll say it's easily done. You just pick anyone and pretend like you never have met. The way that they want Jesus to go away, just forget that He ever lived. Forget that He ever existed. Forget what the Bible has to say about Him. But Jesus invites everyone in need. Whether it's from the emptiness and uselessness of some part of their body or part of their life, Jesus invites everyone who needs a rest from religion to consider him, to trust him, to love him. Man-made religion will always attempt to reach out and touch God. But God reaches out and rescues man through Jesus. A.W. Tozer said, every man will have to decide for himself whether or not he can afford the terrible luxury of unbelief. And then he goes on and he says, it is unbelief that prevents our minds from soaring into the celestial city and walking by faith with God across the golden streets, and it is unbelief that we'll do whatever is necessary to get rid of Jesus once and for all. But it doesn't have to be that way for you. You can love him. You can embrace him. You can know him Heavenly Father, I pray for each man and each woman. I pray for the hurting person who needs mercy. And the one in bondage who needs love. Lord, I pray for that person whose conscience is shrunk and withered, whose heart is empty and dark, whose mind is filled with fear as they try to make their way through a difficult circumstance, a difficult relationship, a difficult marriage, a difficult world. Heavenly Father, I pray that by Your Holy Spirit You would extend an invitation to them to stand up and to stretch forth their need and allow Jesus to grab them and take them and fill them with whatever is necessary to bring about wholeness and wellness. Because they just can't wait till Monday. They need help now. In Jesus' name, Amen.